So how many of you are thankful that his mercies are new every morning? You know, um, one of the things that we are, um, that we are guilty of is, you know, we, we desperately are aware of how much grace we need. And we are desperate for that grace and grateful when we receive it. But we have to really understand God's economy to understand the way that God wants us to live in community. That, um, we're blessed to be a blessing. That, you know, uh, forgive those as you have been forgiven. Love as you've been loved. No greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend, and I call you friend. You know, it's, it's, God has, Jesus poured out his life. He said, for I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then he's called us to follow him in that. For, for us who have um, been beneficiaries of such a great love and such amazing grace and mercy, the forgiveness that we've experienced and we're so dependent on and so thankful for, we, God's economy is this, that we, we give what we've received, that we give it away. And, and when it's done in community, we receive from others the very things, you know, uh, we see this in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And it talks to us about comfort and how desperate we are for comfort and that God is the God of all comfort. And, uh, and, and that we comfort others with the comfort we've received firsthand from the Father. And so that's God's economy. That we don't, we're not given for, for selfish purposes. We're not given for ourselves. We're given to give. Today we're going to continue our series in the Old Testament looking at the different patriarchs and characters and helping to glean from how God interacts and, and, uh, and, and then we, we, we get to see their positive traits, their negative traits, where they, they, they follow the Lord and where they fail to follow the Lord. And we can benefit from these things. But when we think of, uh, of King Solomon, the first thing, as I titled the message this morning, the first thing that comes to mind is wisdom and wives, Right? Wisdom and wives, because this is what really characterized um, uh, Solomon. And, you know, I'm going to grab my lifeline real quick, because I want to read um, the, the piece that I put on the front. So grab your lifeline with me, um, and look at the very front cover of the lifeline this morning. Because here's, here's the sad truth. Um, Nehemiah, just so we have the chronology of the Bible, Nehemiah was a part of uh, the remnant that came back to Jerusalem to help rebuild, in Nehemiah's case, the wall, Ezra, the temple. But this is after the, uh, the Babylonian exile, uh, which took place in 522 B.C. And, uh, and so this is long way down the road from what we're talking about this morning. Um, as we think about Solomon was the last uh, king of a unified kingdom. After Solomon, his son Rehoboam, uh, was the king of the southern kingdom of two of the of the twelve tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, and then the other ten were given to a guy by the name of Jeroboam, who was not a son of of, uh, of Solomon's. And so the, the, the after Solomon, after Saul was the first king, then David, and then Solomon. But after Solomon's reign, and because of Solomon's idolatry, it says that the kingdom was divided. And, uh, and then we see that the northern kingdom had 19 kings, that not one of them was obedient to the Lord. Not one of them. And the southern kingdom had 20 kings, a total of 39 kings before they were exiled. Uh, before they, uh, for the northern kingdom, Assyria came in as God's instrument and disciplined the northern kingdom. And that was in 786. 
No, no, let me get this right. I'm, I, I gotta correct myself. 722 was the, when the Assyrians came in BC and, uh, and exiled, uh, the, the people of the Northern Kingdom. 586 was when the Southern Kingdom was then besieged by, by, um, by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar and they were exiled. But prior to that, um, the Southern Kingdom had 20 kings. 20 kings, including uh, Rehoboam, and after Rehoboam, before, you know, after uh, Saul and David and, and Solomon. And of those 20 kings, only eight of them followed the Lord. And we see that the reason that these kingdoms fell because, is because they lost sight of who God was. And they began to worship other gods, and, and they pursued other things and loved other things other than, other than him. And so... What we're after today is to understand from, from Solomon's perspective where he struggled and what, and, and, and trust me, I, I found a lot of myself in this week's study and preparation. Um, and, uh, and we are very prone to idolatry, to loving something more than we love God. Those things always pop up and we have to be very sensitive to that because they will destroy us, destroy the ones we love. They, they, um, they are instruments of destruction in our lives and then we become instruments of destruction because they become our, our self-serving God. And, they, and they, they make very poor gods. So the reason I bring up that chronology is Nehemiah now is at the end of the... The, the southern kingdom has now fallen to Babylon in, in 586. Seventy years later from there, so now we're at 516 B.C., and, um, and Nehemiah is now coming back to help to restore the nation of Israel. And, um, and this is what he has to say about Solomon. So this is, this is a long time later. And this is the legacy that is spoken of Solomon at that particular time. Listen to what, it's, what he says in Nehemiah 13:26 Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women among the many nations there was no king like him and he was beloved by his god and god made him king over all Israel nevertheless foreign women made even him to sin and so um you know there are always things beckoning our life for affection and attention and man God is the only one that's worthy. And, and, and our love for him, that's, that's the only relationship, that's the only love and priority that uh, causes us to become, not to be destroyed. And, uh, and then we become a part of this economy that we're describing this morning. As God becomes our first and foremost, as he becomes our, 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 our joy and our, and our focus, like what happens is, is then we get to experience him firsthand and then we get to be the instrument that God uses for others to experience love and grace and forgiveness. So I want to I want to kind of lay some uh, some context for this morning. So it's it's important that we kind of uh, remember where we're at in the lineage. We've been reminding you throughout this uh, this uh, series, whether it was Nathan last week or Trevor the week before, that um, that Israel's history now, as those have, that have been grafted in to the true vine that have been grafted into Israel. Um, this is this is our spiritual lineage. This is our spiritual heritage too, and so it's important that we know and understand it. And we get the we get the privilege of getting a glimpse at how God interacts and relates to others, and we we benefit from that encounter and having their biographies and uh, and life experiences. So let me just recap where we're at. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, 
and uh, and at the sixth day he created mankind, and uh, and he said it was very good, and he named him Adam. Well, God said it was not good for man to be alone, and so God built the Hebrew says, God built for him a woman by taking his rib, and uh, and forming and fashioning uh, someone, uh, someone very distinct, very on purpose. In, in every facet to be his helpmate, to be the one that would share his responsibilities to care uh, for all of creation. Well, uh, the two of them uh, uh, had children, their first two children. Anybody know who the first two children were? Of Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain killed Abel. Why? Because Cain was jealous of Abel's um, sacrifice. See, Abel gave God his first and his best. And we, we understand that what Cain gave, it said, it said that Abel gave him his, the, the, the first and the fat portions, the best of the flock. And, uh, and we know that, uh, what Cain did is, uh, he gave his leftovers. And, uh, and God was not pleased with his offering. And that's no different than for us today. God deserves our best and not the rest. God deserves all of us and not a portion of us. And so, um, so we see that God says to uh, Cain, says, won't you too be accepted if you do what is right? So all God was beckoning to do was, is to make an offering that's appropriate for who God is. And so, um, so Cain, rather than, than responding to this rebuke, Cain chooses, and, and, and God, God uh, kind of warns him, right? Gives him an opportunity for repentance. And he says, look, sin's knocking at your door and it seeks to master you. You must rule over it. Because he knew what was in Cain's heart to kill his brother. And even after he does kill his brother and kind of lures him out to the field and, and buries him, God comes to Cain and says, in an opportunity for repentance, he says, where's your brother? Where's Abel at? And uh, you remember Cain's response, am I my brother's keeper? And uh, God then says, his blood cries out me from, to me from the ground. And, uh, and then he has is, he is given his consequences for his lack of repentance for what he has done. Look, let me, let me say this right here because I think it's incredibly important. You know, God's not looking for perfection from us, even though that's our aim. Does that make sense? Jesus said in Matthew 25, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our aim. And with the Spirit's help, um, you know, I don't think we get there on this side of heaven because we get perfected in his presence. But, but that's our aim. And with the Spirit's help, those things, we, we, we actually grow up in the Lord. We, we actually mature. Because this is God's finishing work. I love in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. In 23, it tells us that, that it's God who's sanctifying us. And then in verse 24, it says, uh, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Like God is going to finish what he started, Philippians 1, 6 says. But, but rather than repenting, he, he chooses to continue to, to follow his course. Now, this is not any different than the man we're looking at today in King Solomon. Solomon knew the word of the Lord, had a very vibrant relationship, much like his father's relationship in his heart. But he started to fall in love with something more than he loved his God. And, uh, and it was women for him. We don't see that. We see that for David. We see that for Samson. Um, we got to be careful what we love first. And Jesus said it this way, because we have a tendency to worry uh, and to be anxious about things, Jesus said, seek first, Matthew 5.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things that you worry about will be added unto you as well. 
But God wants in in Revelation three or uh, the Laodice, the Laodicean church is, is 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 challenged in Revelation to return to its first love, and we have to make sure it is and it is a constant. Do do we believe that marriage is work in, in relationship? Yeah, it, it requires a constant. Um, you know that we need to focus. We need to make sure that we are we are because there are enemies of marriage that look to come in and and uh, and take precedence careers, children, other things. And it's, that's the same thing that's true in our relationship with God. God. God requires first place. You know, like with Cain and Abel, no other place will do from God's perspective. Um, because you know why? It's a protective thing for us. Because if we put anything in front of God, it'll destroy us. It falls apart. Even marriage, even children, um, it, uh, Jesus said it this way, you must hate your mother and father, your sister and brother. Yes, even your own life. Why? Because if that, think about it, if we love our own lives more than we love God, we're going to choose to put ourselves first instead of his kingdom. And that doesn't that happen more often than it should anyway? And so what God wants from us is he wants, he wants first place because not because not only does it give him glory and it promotes his kingdom and it, and it causes other people to get saved and it, and it actually stimulates God's economy and the way that he designs us and desires for us to live, but it, it's, it's also what's best for us. Do you believe that? But that means that we've got to die to ourselves and live for him. We've got to put something other than us on the throne of our lives. And so Cain chose to do what he wanted rather than what God wanted. And look at the consequence, death, separation. Um, and then eventually, he didn't, he didn't get to be on the ark, by the way. <laughs> and so, um, and that's a picture of, of Jesus himself. Well, after Cain um, is disciplined, uh, we see that at the age of 130, uh, uh, Adam and Eve had other children. And we have a specific child that's born at, at 130. His name is Seth. And this is the line in which we will see the birth of Noah. Okay, so later on down the line, after Seth is born, there's a guy by the name of Noah whose father was Lamech, whose grandfather was Enoch. And it's said about Noah that he walked with God, that he was blameless among his generation, and he was a righteous man. And this was, this was a lineage issue. And one of the things that we see in the scriptures as we walk through is we see the sins of the father. You know, but let me say this. this here's the good news this morning. If, if, if our parents have sinned in our life and, and our grandparents and so on and so forth, Jesus can break the chains. And he does. He can separate us from uh, an unholy life by making us holy. And now we have a different line that we, are, that we are a part of. We are righteous and holy because we belong to Jesus. We belong to God. We've been purchased for that purpose. And so that's, that's incredibly, that's, that's great news. Well, Noah had three sons. Anybody know what their names were? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, um, Ham was the the uh, the the descendant or the the um, the ancestor of the Canaanites. Shem was the descendant of what we know as Israel. So Abraham came from Shem. But we know that eight people got in the ark. Everybody else perished. Why? Because it, it says in the scripture in, in Genesis six that. Um, Every thought was only evil all the time. That was the condition of the mindset of humanity. And it said, God said he would not contend with man any longer. His days would be 120 years. He said that, that because of man, the, the earth was filled with violence. And he said that he, he was grieved. 
his heart was filled with pain, it says, that he had created man. And so he begins again with eight people, four couples. And uh, after one year and 17 days, the, the ark lands. Uh, they wait till God says to go forth. Uh, the, 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 uh, the leaf is brought back by the dove. And, uh, and we know that they, they go out and they, they begin to repopulate the earth. An interesting fact at this point is animals now have, have um, animinity between uh, humans and animals. Prior to that, there was no. The scriptures say that. That's an interesting fact because that's how they could live at peace in the ark together. That's, animals did not eat one another prior to um, the flood. But afterwards, we see uh, that transpiring and that, and that taking place. Um, Noah did everything the Lord commanded, and that's often said of him. The descendant of Shem, one of Noah's sons, was Abraham. Abraham married a, 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 his half-sister, we find out later, by the name of Sarai. Uh, Sarai was barren, uh, but after prayer and a lot of faith, um, they believed uh, God. Uh, Sarah initially laughed, but believed God for the promised son, which was Isaac. Unfortunately, prior to the promised son coming to them, uh, they tried to do it in their own strength. They tried to do it in their own time. And uh, an Egyptian maidservant was given to Abraham as another wife. And we see this becoming a broken cycle in uh, the relationships to come where, where multiple wives. And it see, we see that it, it comes to a, a grand expression in Solomon's life. You know, Abraham takes on another wife uh, while he is still married to Sarah. And this is Sarah's idea. Go figure. And this is where we see the Arabs or we see Ishmael and the Ishmaelites uh, that comes from uh, that relationship. Well, later on, um, Isaac uh, grows up. Abraham insists on sending a servant back to his homeland, to Haran, to uh, his to his family uh, to find a wife. And uh, Isaac's wife comes. And what's her name? Rebecca. Rebecca comes and uh, there is this immediate love and affinity between them. But then all of a sudden, this barren, again, Sarah was barren, Rebecca was barren. This barren woman um, ends up uh, conceiving and it says, God says to her that there's two nations in your wombs and they will, and they will war against one another and the, uh, and the older will serve the younger. And so uh, there, this ends up playing out in conflict between um, Rebecca and Isaac. Because Isaac tends to uh, be, you know, favoritism towards Esau, and uh, Re- Rebecca uh, tends to be favoritism, show favoritism towards Jacob. Why? Because she knows God has said that He will be the leader, the the lineage, the the firstborn birthrights and blessing. But again, like Sarah, she tries to take it into her own hands. She tries to force this process, and uh, and so does Jacob. And so he steals the birthright by. Uh, selling, uh, getting Esau to sell it for a, bo- a bowl of stew when he was hungry. Uh, and later on, he deceives his father. And that's part of what his, 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 his life is categorized by his deception. But he didn't, he didn't steal it, as we say in the Bahamas. He got it from his descendants, right? I mean, Abraham deceived when he said that his wife was his sister um, to two different uh, leaders, uh, a pharaoh and a king, trying to protect his own life rather than trust God. And so we see here that um, that Rebecca and uh, and Isaac um, have these two children, and they end up because of favoritism. They end up, um, you know, their their relationship is is drastically their marriage is influenced by that. Um, after uh, after Esau finds out what Jacob has done in stealing his uh, his blessing, uh, his parents tell him, "You better get out of here, your your brother. We know your brother wants to kill you." 
And so he heads back off to Iran to his, uh, to his uncle Laban, his mom's brother, and he spends over 20 years there, uh, the first seven years working to try to, uh, to gain the love of his life. And what was his, who was his first love? Rachel, right? He loved Rachel. First, when he put his eyes on her, he loved her. And his, his own uncle deceives him. So he reaps what he sows, right? He's deceived by his own uncle and he's given her older sister first because they were veiled uh, and significantly veiled during the wedding uh, ceremony. He wakes up the next morning, realizes he's been deceived, goes to his uncle Laban, says, what is this? You've deceived me. And he says, okay, finish the wedding week and uh, you'll be able to marry Rachel and then work for me for another seven years. So after a week, now he's married to two women. They're sisters and there's a rivalry. Uh, and then that, that competitive spirit kind of manifests itself in, I'm going to produce more children than you. Uh, unfortunately, Rachel can't give, uh, can't give Jacob children, um, but Leah can. And so she uses this leverage to try to win his affection. And so she gives him, uh, Simeon and, uh, and Levi and, uh, and first, uh, um, um, Reuben. And then finally, the fourth child is Judah. Uh, this is a significant child because this is the lineage by which Jesus would come to us. King David would come to us. This is the lineage that Rahab and Ruth would marry into. Um, and so these, these are four of the 12 sons that Jacob would eventually have, not just by Leah and Rachel, um, but also by their two maidservants. So he ends up marrying uh, both of their maidservants, all in this competitive fury of wanting to give him children and win his affection. And so when it's all said and done, he has 12 sons and one daughter. Uh, we see that as they make their way down, after he's wrestled with God, his name's been changed from Jacob to Israel, and he is speculating that his brother is coming to kill him and finds out otherwise that God has given him favor and changed his heart, um, that he ends up in Shechem. And at this place, these people... Um, well, first, what happens is uh, the prince of Shechem actually rapes his sister Dinah and um, uh, their sister Dinah. And uh, and then the prince comes to his father and says, get me this woman. I want her to be my wife. And uh, and what happens in that moment is uh, there's a deception that happens again. Uh, the older brothers uh, say, look, we are circumcised people. If you if you're if you if all your men get circumcised, we will marry your women. You can marry our women, and we'll make it a we'll make it a community experience. And um, and then uh, what happens is after three days after they were circumcised, these the boys go in. Two of the boys go in, and they literally kill all the men in Shechem, uh, which Jacob becomes very upset about uh, because he feels like it is uh, it has compromised God's uh, desire and design for them as a family, and obviously that is not uh, God's purpose. So uh, they move on from there, and um, we find out that uh, Ra- Rachel finally has children. She has a firstborn. Uh, what was Rachel's firstborn son? Joseph. Joseph, and his secondborn son, her secondborn son was Benjamin. She actually dies giving birth to Benjamin. And so J- Jacob becomes very protective of these two children and cherishes Joseph emphatically. He ends up taking Joseph um, and keeping him at home. Um, and protecting him, giving him uh, unique clothes like a technicolor coat or a coat of many colors. Uh, Joseph is a, a dreamer, 
And so he, uh, he tends to uh, want to share these dreams, and these dreams are prophetic in the fact that they come to fruition. And they talk about him ruling over his family and being given, given a, a role of great influence. And so um, they begin to hate him and despise him. His father sends him to check on the boys. They were out looking at the sheep in Do- Dothan. And uh, when, he, when they, on his way there, they see him at a distance, and they're like, let's kill him. Some of them say, others are like, no way, I don't want to be killing him. You know what that will do to our father? And they get into a, they get into a fuss or an argument. Um, there happens to be a cistern there that's dry or a well that's dry. And one of them in a, in a mode to, to save him, either Reuben or Judah says, let's throw him in the well, uh, trying to preserve his life. Well, some Ishmaelites come along in a caravan heading to Egypt and their, their conclusion when the one brother that's trying to protect him is, is gone, uh, is let's sell him into slavery. Let's sell him to these folks and get rid of him. That way we don't kill him. Well, that's exactly what they do. And Joseph is now on his way to, uh, to, uh, to Egypt. And he has been completely betrayed by his family. Um, so what happens with the boys is they grab the coat. That a coat always seems to get Joseph in trouble. And uh, he grabbed, they grab his coat, they tear it, they put blood on it, and they, they, they lie. So we see this thread of deception flowing all the way from Abraham. They lie to their own father and say, you know, an animal must, or helped him to draw that conclusion. Joseph ends up in Egypt. Uh, he is now a servant of a guy by the name of Potiphar, which is, he's, the, he's one of the commanders in, in Egypt. He actually has the jail under his house. Uh, he is responsible for, for the jail. And, um, and he has a wife who wants to pursue Joseph because she finds him super attractive. And Joseph is, is, has so much favor that he, everything he touched turns to gold in Potiphar's house. And so he puts everything under Joseph. And uh, rather than that um, dissuading Potiphar's wife, she begins to pr- pursue him even more. And one day she grabs him and, and literally says, sleep with me. And, uh, and he says this, he says, how can I do this evil thing? Not against Potiphar, but against God. And he runs, leaving his coat behind. Um, this is the evidence that she uses to tell her husband that, that this Hebrew you brought into our house has come to have his way with me. And uh, Potiphar believes his wife, throws him in jail, which happens to be right there at his house. And uh, he spends years in prison, uh, continuing to be a model servant, continuing to trust God, uh, having moments of dis- discouragement, um, experiences the, the cupbearer and the baker um, and uh, is helps to interpret dreams because he's had dreams of his own. And this, this, uh, these guys are told that one of them is going to die and one of them is going to live. And he says, when you get back to Pharaoh, please don't, don't forget to tell him about me. And, uh, and he doesn't remember. He chooses to forget. Or God, God's timing, sovereign timing gets, uh, gets accomplished here. And so he ends up... Um, Later on, remembering when Pharaoh has these dreams about sleek cows and, and fat cows and, and uh, he's troubled by these dreams, um, he, uh, he reminds Pharaoh, he's reminded and he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Joseph comes and interprets his dream and Joseph is given because of his wisdom and influence and because of God's sovereignty, he is given the prime minister role. He's second in command in all of Egypt. Uh, the scripture literally says that he was a father to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh must have been young because we know Joseph was 30 years old. He had spent 13 years in Egypt at this point between Potiphar's house and in jail and now is promoted to this role 
uh, as the prime minister of all of Egypt in charge of everything except Pharaoh himself. And so um, Joseph uh, lives there, uh, helps to navigate the world through a famine, uh, the known world. And, uh, and then his family comes and, uh, and he tests his, his family. But eventually his family comes and lives in Goshen, uh, which is what Pharaoh gives to his whole family. Seventy seven of them in all come and live in Goshen. And, uh, and the next person we see on the scene is a guy by the name of Moses. And the reason uh, Moses is on the scene is, is that um, Pharaoh is getting pretty intimidated by the growth of Israel. Uh, and the reason they're called Israel is because Jacob's name was chained to Israel. And they are descendants of, 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 of Jacob. Um, so that, and his name was Israel, so they were Israelites. And so what happens is, is that uh, uh, the Pharaoh gets very, very, he says, if they ever turn on us, they will fight against us. We can't have that. We will enslave them. Uh, but before they do, before he does that, he, like Herod, seeks to kill uh, any child that comes into, uh, any boy child that comes into the nation of Israel. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the ladies that bring forth the children, their names, midwives. midwives, they won't do it. They won't do it. They know it displeases the Lord. God blesses them for that. And they preserve Moses' life by not getting involved. And the mothers, they said to Pharaoh, are stronger then you would believe. And before we get there, they're already having the kids. And so they set him. The mom has Moses. Uh, now, Miriam and Aaron have already been born. Um, and uh, she sets him in a reed basket, sends him down the Nile and uh, and just puts him in God's hands. Well, she ends up he ends up uh, in Pharaoh's courtyard uh, while while his daughter is bathing. And uh, and somehow, by God's grace, Moses is brought into uh, Pharaoh's home as a prince of Egypt. Uh, not, not until he is actually weaned by his own mother. Only God can orchestrate these things. Pretty amazing stuff. And so, uh, then he ends up being at, a, at the age of 40, Moses thinking, knowing in his own DNA, in his own, like the way that God has made him, he knows that he's the deliverer that God has designed and, and, and desires to use to deliver, uh, his people from this enslavery to Egypt. And, uh, but he tries to do it in his own time, in his own way, and ends up killing an Egyptian taskmaster. Uh, next day he goes out and sees his fellow uh, Israelites, and uh, they, he tries to be a peacemaker. And they're like, oh, what are you going to do to us, what you did to that, that guy? And he, find, he realizes that people know about this. And Pharaoh finds out he, he hides, to, he, he leaves uh, for fear of his own life. Well, Moses spends the next 40 years in uh, his father-in-law Jethro or Raul, depending on the language, in his house as a herder, as a shepherd, um, which in Egyptian culture would have been the lowest of lows as far as the caste system, as far as job. And so here he is. He is the he is a shepherd. He feels completely demoted. Somehow during this time, he loses his ability to speak well. He, he stutters. And after 40 years of what we would know now as preparation, God comes to him through a burning bush. And this unique sight, he goes and sees what it is. He's asked to take his sandals off. He's on holy ground. And God begins to tell him, I'm going to use you, yes, you, a humble servant, to go and deliver my people, all two and a half million of them from Egypt. And uh, he's like, nope, you got the wrong guy. I don't even know how to talk anymore. Uh, You know, my time has passed. And, uh, and God says, who made your mouth? 
I know what you're doing. And there began this dialogue of him trying to, and basically what Moses was doing, he was taking personal assessment of what he could do rather than what God could do through him. And so uh, we will always fall short if we assess ourselves and, and measure it to the task that God has for us. Going out there and try to make disciples and fulfill the Great Commission without the Spirit, it will be a less than fruitful experience and a very arduous and, and, and painful experience. But if we do that in God's strength and for His glory, God will use us to save lives. And this is exactly what God used Moses to do, to deliver the people of Egypt from Pharaoh's harm and grasp. And, to, and after 10 plagues, he heads out into the desert. And all he knows is that he is called to go out and worship. And you know what the truth is? So are we. That's all we're told to do is just to go and be living sacrifices, go and worship. Moses had no idea what, how long this would take. I mean, it's 11 days from, from Egypt to Canaan. And it ended up being a 40-year track because of disbelief or disobedience. And Moses was a part of that. And so he ends up going out. They get trapped in the Red Sea. And they think there's no way out. God makes a way where there is no way. And he, he actually destroys the entire, the, the most powerful army on the planet right before their eyes. And Moses can do nothing else but just burst into uh, song, as we talked about this morning. He just bursts into a, an impromptu song because his heart is just filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. Miriam joins him in that song, his sister, and they celebrate in this moment. But it's not, it's short-lived because next thing you know, in chapter 20 of Exodus, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai and they're already building golden calves and going back to the Egyptian culture. And here's where this ties into King, to, to King Solomon. We, um, and, and how, and this ties for us. We are incredibly susceptible to our culture. If we think that we're beyond the influence of music and media, we are, we are, we are, we are mistaken. We are, we are incredibly susceptible to the thing that we give our focus, our heart, and our attention to. The thing we serve is our God. The thing we focus on is our God. And that can be, that can simply be us. I want to say this because this morning really is about wisdom because that's what defines Solomon's life because he, God promised him wisdom because he didn't ask for anything else, prosperity, influence, finances, health. He asked for wisdom so that he might be a good steward or a good leader of his people. And, and you know, we look at the book of James and one of the things that it says in the book of James is one of the reasons we don't have what we ask for is because we ask with poor motives that we might use it for selfish purposes. And, man, that's, a, that's an indictment on the church, I believe, because we need to really question our motive. Do you know, this, is, this, might, this, might, this really touched me this week as far as in a, in a challenging way, convicting way, is that... When God gives us, and I've already mentioned this this morning, but when God gives us something, it's not meant for us, it's meant to share. It really is. I mean, God does give us things to provide for us, but he really wants us to have the mindset, not, oh, good for me, but, but more, it's good for everybody. 
that they were, were blessed to be a blessing. And so let me put this in the context of wisdom. So often we pray for wisdom and we were called to do that on the other side of chapter one of James verses two through four. It says, can a pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of the faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you're mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So it makes sense going into verse five that he says, and if any of you lacks wisdom, Look, when we go through the trials and the pains and the, tr- and the struggles of life, we, we need wisdom. Um, Solomon, in all of his wisdom literature, because Solomon wrote some of the Psalms, a few of them. He wrote Proverbs. Proverbs like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I mean, he wrote these, these, these nuggets of wisdom. In fact, um, in 1 Kings it tells us that he... He, uh, he, he had 3,000 Proverbs. Well, if that's the case, and we have 31, and not all of the Proverbs are Solomon, especially the latter ones. But that tells us that we have a big chunk of what Solomon had as far as Proverbs that we have today given to us. And one of the things we see in that passage and other wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes, and he also wrote Song of Songs, but we see that, that he, he actually personifies wisdom and calls it what? She, like, and talks about it being more, more, more precious than rubies and gold and, and all these, these wonderful things. And so one of the things that, it, that came to me this week is, as we talk about, like, you know, you, you ask and you don't receive because what you ask for, you have selfish intent for. And, but on the other side of going through trials, and Jesus says, in this world, you'll have troubles, but take heart, I've overcome. I mean, God wants to impart wisdom to us. Um, but here's here's another big point. Wisdom is not wisdom is also wisdom is from God, and like everything else that's from God, it's for God. You ever thought about that? Like we we always think that I mean because we have somewhat of a hedonistic perspective in life, we we kind of think that everything's about us and for us. But can you imagine that? What what if God's economy is this? When someone in your, in your body, in your intimate context, in your life, is in desperate need of wisdom, what if, it, if, if we abide and we're asking for wisdom, what if it's God that wants to give us the wisdom for others so that we learn to live in community? What if it's when we need encouragement, God, God has us in intimate community with a Barnabas or someone that has the gift of encouragement or someone that has the gift of teaching or or other things. Guys, you know, I, I think God wants us to have a posture about the things that we're given to say that maybe this is given to me for God's glory primarily, and secondly, maybe others and them for me. And does that not mess with our paradigm as, 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 as people in the West and as a U.S. culture? Because we, we, we like to think that everything's about us and for us. You know, and if we're asking for stuff, you know, we, we make the list quite often. And, and what if? What if Jesus modeled selfless love? What if what Jesus got from the Father, he gave to others? Is that true? What if everything he got from the Father, he imparted to us? That's true. And even wisdom... Even wisdom, not only is it, it, it finds its source in God, nowhere else. Even wisdom is not for us primarily. It's for God's glory and for others. If we were postured in that way where we understood God's economy and that he wants us to be postured to receive so that we might give, 
And that is, I believe, God's will and God's way. So we see Moses and Aaron heading into the desert. Uh, Aaron and Moses are from what one of the sons? They're descendants of what tribe? Anybody know? The Levites, right? So they are priests by, by God's design. Uh, Aaron is the first high priest. Um, the next major character we see on the scene is a guy by the name of Joshua. Uh, and Joshua is uh, a son of Nun. Uh, we found out this morning that he is actually a descendant of Joseph. Um, he's from Ephraim. Uh, so he, uh, he ends up being God. It says he is Moses' aide. He becomes Moses' uh, apprentice. And then he gets to lead Israel across the Jordan and into uh, the promised land. He gets to be the one to lead them into the battle of Jericho. He gets to be the instrument. Why? Because he was only one of two people that believed God for the promise that he had made, even though they went into the to promised land as spies and saw that the, that they were grasshoppers in relationship to the size of the people in the promised land. Uh, they were overwhelmed. Everybody, everybody else wanted to put their tail between the legs and give up. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, God has made a promise and he will be faithful. And they walked by faith and not by sight. And so Joshua leads this two and a half plus million people that now has has been purged of a whole generation because of disobedience and disbelief. Guys, do we know this? Do we know that that simply, you know, in John chapter six, Jesus is asked, what must we do? You know, this is a familiar question that he's asked. And he says, believe in the one that is sent. Like it always comes down to faith. It always comes down to belief. Because, look, we're not called to be perfect. We're called to be, to be re- repentative. And that's a statement of belief because we believe that God forgives and that he's a grace-giving God that loves. Listen, if Jesus going to the cross doesn't declare that he wants to have relationship with us and he's do- he'll do whatever it takes in order to reconcile us to himself, and that should clearly say that God loves us and that he longs to be with us. So Joshua leads us into the promised land. Um, Caleb is the first judge, and we see this cycle of of uh, the the judges going, you know, being raised up because the people cry out to the Lord because of the evil they do. They end up walking away from the Lord. Do we see that the relationship with God from 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 Adam all the way to 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 now is is really a relationship of obedience versus disobedience god god even says i don't i don't want sacrifice i want obedience and what is obedience in reality o- obedience is an expression of of adoration obedience is saying that you know better than i do obedience is saying that i trust you more than i trust anything else and i'm going to even though I, I i can't quantify this i'm going to do what you've asked me to do I'm going to trust in your promises. So, so we see uh, judges like Gideon. Uh, we see uh, Samson. We see Deborah. And they go through this series. And then the last judge and now becoming prophet. And this transition is more of, of not someone actually judging the people's problems, but as much as being a mouthpiece for God as we see a guy by the name of Samuel. And Samuel um, is raised by a guy by the name of Eli. Um, and given to him from Hannah after much prayer. And, and what happens is, is Samuel gets to, uh, to anoint a king. Why? Because they have not rejected Samuel, God says. He says, you have rejected me. Israel has rejected their God. And here's, here's why. 
Because Israel wanted to be like the other nations. Man, Romans 12 Verses, verse 2 says, Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might test and approve what God's good, perfect, and pleasing will is. There is Solomon is an incredible example in a negative way of when we want to be like the world, it will destroy us. When we want to, we want to fit in. Look, we're a peculiar people by design. When, uh, you know, we're, we're called as Christians, to stand out in a good way. We, uh, we, we don't, you know, do not argue or complain about anything that you might stand out like stars, that you might shine like stars in the universe holding out to the word of life. Like we're called to, to be different in the most practical of ways because we we're able to be patient because the Spirit's presence in our life in a, in a context where impatience would be obvious. We're called to love when, when hated or insulted or persecuted. We're called to, to, to forgive rather than retaliate. And these things are, are not hard. They're impossible in their, in their ideal expression. Love as you've been loved by God. Be perfect as your heavenly father. No, but with, with the Spirit's help, these things are possible when we trust God and rest in Him and make Him our first and foremost, when we yield our lives and hearts. Because if we're honest, the American church just wants the blessings, but they don't want the blesser. They want the gifts, but they don't want the gift giver. And we need to be careful that we're not susceptible to that mentality or that teaching. Because God's intention wasn't to give us stuff, it was to give Him Himself. Like, and that's what he's up to. God is looking to, to bring back his image in us. That's what the sanctifying work of the Spirit is. He is redeeming us to look like him again. And so God's not looking to, I mean, once we understand his goal and his objective, then, then we can very easily go, you know what, like First John talks about, I don't want, I don't want to love the world or anything in the world. I don't want to love this stuff. Be not, con- be not deceived. Right? It talks about you cannot serve two masters. This is Matthew 6, 30, 20, 24, excuse me. It says you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. And man, we got to be careful what, what captures our heart, what, what has our gaze, what we're, what we're after. Can you ask yourself this morning, what are you after? What do you love the most in your life? And if it's not God, trust me, the very thing that you love is, is going to fall apart. But the, God says that to us for our very best, for his purposes. So we get through the judges and, and now Samuel gets to anoint the first king of Israel. Who's the first king of Israel? Saul, right? Uh, this was a, a man by all, ex- all external purposes, was a man that was a perfect king, right? He was a warrior. He was uh, head and shoulders above all the other men. He looked like a king, right, on the outside. But the problem is he didn't have a heart for God. He didn't have, and what I mean by that, when the, the chance that he had, the opportunities he had to obey God, he rejected those moments. And he chose to do what he wanted. You know, he was supposed to, to offer, leave everything behind in the battle. And instead, Samuel shows up and he hears the bleeding of sheep. And he's like, um, he's like, God has rejected you as king. 
because you have not followed through on what he asked you to do. You've kept for yourself. And you know all that Samuel's concerned about? I mean, all that uh, Saul's concerned about? Hey, would you walk with me back to the man? I don't want them to see this going on here. Image. Guys, we've got to be careful that we're not trying to make us famous, that we're trying to make God famous. That's a whole different objective. That's a whole different, like, set of values. Like, what, what is... I mean, when, it, when we come to the end of our life, because it, it saddens me that a man that had, like, he tasted everything this world has to offer. In Ecclesiastes, he says it's meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. He said, when it all comes down to it, look at it in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, you know, all that matters is obedience to God, to know his commands and to serve him and to run after God. That, that's after he's tasted all this stuff. Do you know this man had 700 Wives, King Solomon did. 700 wives. And then, let's not leave it there, he had seven or 300 concubines. And what that means is that servants in his house ended up becoming wives. 300 of them. So, you know, and, and, and I'm a kind of a, a statistical person. I like numbers. And so I got kind of curious about this. And Solomon's reign was 40 years. Okay? And we know that he kind of got enamored with, with, with Pharaoh's daughter. And that, that relationship kind of, you know, took off initially and he was somewhat a one-woman man and, uh, and had a few of those. But after the Queen of Sheba came, after building the temple and his, his own palace, after the Queen of Sheba shows up, man, it's, you know, now he's looking to make alliances with other nations. And these other nations want to make alliance with Solomon because they know he's the wisest man. And if he ever turns on them, they're in trouble, so let's 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 send a let's send a woman or two and some stuff, right? One of the one of the gifts that came with one of the wives, uh, Chad and I were talking about this. One of the gifts that came with one of the wives was six hundred and sixty-six talents of gold. Okay, now let me let me say this. Uh, so Chad did some some quick analysis of that, and we figured out that a, a talent of gold is one hundred and ten pounds. Right. And if we did that on today's you know, monetary system, just just one talent would be worth two point eight seven two something million dollars. And this was just one gift that was given. And th- this was I mean, he had 16,000 stalls of horses. He had apes and baboons uh, as pets. You know, I mean, like he he literally leveled all of Lebanon's cedar in order to build his palace and to build. But all of this was done out of obedience to, to God. And, and, and you listen to his prayers. We'll look at some of this next week. But you listen to some of his prayers and you listen to some of his heart. And man, this guy loves God. But, and, and, and church, please hear this. This is a guy that loves God. And he's got his father's heart. He does. But somehow he he loses sight and he starts. Do you know what he did? He ended up. Okay, so the the the, the temple that he built for God, which the blueprints were given to him by his father David, um, the temple that he built for God was. Let me make sure I get this right. Sixty by twenty by thirty. Now those are cubics, and one cubit is about a foot and a half because they this is how they measured a cubic back when Noah was building an ark, and they say they were a little bigger than us, but from tip to elbow. 
That's about a foot and a half. I'm, I'm a shorter guy, so maybe not. But that's about a foot and a half. So a cubit is a foot and a half by all intents and purposes. And, um, and so he builds this, the, the temple on those specs. But then you know when he goes to build his palace? He builds his palace a hundred by 60 by 30. So his palace is bigger than the temple that he's built for God. So we see that as all of this influence and all this popularity and all of this money and all of these women start entering into his, and, and truly the scriptures declare in truth that he, he sold his heart to the ladies. And that's where, that's where he lost his way. Look, man, I'm not going to be a good husband to my wife if I don't love Jesus first. I'm not. I'm not. Don't you love when we heard Trevor and Emily's vows last week? Don't you love that both of them stated, you know, one of the things on the very top of their list, I promise to love Jesus first. I, I promise to give God my first love and fruit and heart. Man, it doesn't work any other way. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just wanted to give us some context for, for next week. You know, I'd, I'd hope to get through more Solomon, but next week we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk through specifics with Solomon. Please come back for that. And here, I'll give you a little homework for this week, okay? Um, read First Kings chapter 1 through 10. That talks about the success of Solomon, okay? So this is the outline for next week. The success of Solomon, chapters 1 through 10. Um, it's also, it's actually in, in also in First Chronicles, same chapters, 1 through 10. It's kind of, it's kind of given from a more rose-colored glass perspective. It's a little later. Nehemiah is probably the, the author, and it's kind of given more of a, a rose-colored perspective. But then in chapter 11, that chapter alone talks about how he lost his way. So First Kings chapter 10, uh, 1 to 10, and then chapter 11 is where is where Solomon lost his way to uh, loving his wives and loving his status and his stature. And let me say this, that, lead, that led him to, that, that actually, see, we think that we can sit in a vacuum and it doesn't affect our loved ones. But because of his leadership, now the, the nation of Israel was divided, there was conflict. Now w- w- he lived at peace on all, on all borders now, all of a sudden, now there's nations that are being raised up by God, it says, as his adversaries, as his, as his enemies. Because, because we need to be disciplined. When we, when we run away from God, the best thing that can happen to us is for us to face a famine. And maybe you're facing a famine. Listen, I, I, it doesn't matter what we're facing this morning. Let me tell you what the antidote is. Love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. That's it. Like, I mean, if we, if we want to sum it all up, look, abide in Christ and his word. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. One thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her because she was sitting at Jesus' feet. Look, we, we need one thing, and everything flows out of that one thing, and that's Jesus. We need a vibrant, living, undefiled, totally devoted relationship with the living God and everything that you want in life. Look, listen, God talks about prosperity. I know we got this whole prosperity gospel that we're so cautious about, and we're so quick to condemn, and, and, and I don't want to go there, but I want to say this. God talks about prosperity, but it's prosperity God's way. He's talking about prospering our soul and prospering, giving us prosperity on the inside that manifests itself externally. This is what Solomon experienced for the first seasons of his life because God was first place. 
God was his hope in his heart. But here's the thing, guys. That does not promise that we're not going to face trials and persecution. Because trust me in this. Jesus loved God with all of his heart. And he faced trials and troubles. And per- but listen, when your heart prospers, when the joy of the Lord is your strength, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Like when, when, you're, when, when inside is, is, is vibrant in the Lord, when we're abiding in him, it's like, it's like the, uh, the outside, we're, we're given clarity and perspective about our outward experience. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean it's not hard. To the contrary. But we have a supernatural power that dwells in us, clothed in it, that, that dwells in us in order to make us, to make us more than conquerors to make us vibrant overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You know we need to have a testimony? We need a test. God is faithful to give us those things. But we only get through them by faith, by trusting God. The test is meant to stretch our faith. Guys, every single one of you are a believer this morning. Every single one of you is going through a test somewhere, somehow. And, and we're meant to be yoked together to help one another to go through these tests. You can't, you cannot thrive or succeed in your test without community. Trust me in this. You, you need the one another's. You need other people in your life. You need to be transparent about your struggles and your trials. And you need to reach out. And you need to, you need to also be ready to be the instrument that God uses to love and encourage and serve and forgive and minister to other people. Does that make sense, church? Yeah. So trust me. This week, please read through 1 Kings 1 through 11. You'll be, you'll be ready for next week's message. Um, I'm excited to, to talk more about Solomon. He's such a big figure as far as like what he's written for us. Uh, you can also look at Song of Songs. You can look at Ecclesiastes. That's a 13-chapter read. You'll enjoy that. Um, but come back next week ready to, to hear about you know, what we can glean from the life of Solomon. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you give that we might be givers because that's what love does. Love gives because you're love. And so, Lord, we just pray that, um, that you would help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and the things of this world and even our, our family and put our eyes on you. Lord, help us to take our eyes off of our circumstances and our problems and our sickness and to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we don't lose heart and give in, but that we would realize that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits down at the right hand of the Father. Lord, help us to know that that you have a glorification that is coming, that's promised, that's true, that's guaranteed because you've put your deposit of your spirit in us, and we we don't need to live for this world any longer. Help us to live for you because you died for us. Lord, let us live for you today, every day, and help us to encourage, to spur one another on into love and good deeds. Help us to spur each other on to a, to a vibrant, unabandoned relationship with a living God. That doesn't mean that we, that we don't make mistakes. In fact, we, we, we trust you so much and risk so much that we, we're constantly at your, at your feet saying, Father, forgive me and knowing that you're the prodigal father that restores us every single time if we confess with our mouth, I mean, if we confess um, our sins to a faithful and just God, that you forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I ask that you be with, um, with Trevor and Emily and that you'd bless, bless,
bless their time together. Thank you for them. Thank you for these people that I love so much. And I know you love more. I pray that you would capture our hearts so that we would love nothing even close to as much as we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.